0: To the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth. And correct me if I'm wrong, Laurel, did we do a Midnight Myth last week?
1: I think it was two weeks ago, but we are still on a roll considering our life circumstances and how long we usually go between episodes these days.
0: Yeah, I mean, we used to do a Midnight Myth every week without fail, except if we pre-planned a week off, then a pandemic and a baby happened, and that changed just about everything.
1: Yeah, we were just talking about this, that we used to, on Wednesday nights, be like, what do you want to do on the pod this week? And then on Friday, we would record.
0: Yeah, which would give us, after our day job, just like mere hours, but we would dedicate those hours to researching, producing, getting ready, getting all of our notes together, And then Arthur was born and we threw that out the window. But I'm really happy that we're back on the saddle a week, maybe two weeks after our last episode, which was our Halloween episode on the fall of House of Usher, which was tons of fun to do. But we realized we had done an episode on Ahsoka and at the end of that episode, we decided we wanted to tackle the Star Wars prequels, episode one, two, and three. So this is our first of three episodes On the Star Wars prequels, this is us discussing, now this is pod racing, The Phantom Menace.
1: Jar Jar Binks and everything else that goes with him, baby.
0: I'm really, really looking forward to it. I have a lot to say about these prequels. We will have to touch on some of the hot button, most discussed things about the prequels, in particular in The Phantom Menace. But I hope we're going to lend something a little new to the conversation on the prequels. We won't hold anything back. They are obviously polarizing. There are people that grew up with the prequels being their Star Wars and they love them. Then there are people where the original trilogyists look at the prequels and feel like they're a travesty. And we're gonna withdraw from the prequels all of the great history, mythology, and philosophy, giving them the full Midnight Myth treatment and as always, Star Wars is a contentious thing to put on the internet, so we would love to just say without a warning, or with a warning, I should say, everything that comes out with Star Wars is one Star Wars fan's most favorite Star Wars thing. Conversely, that same thing is one Star Wars fan's least favorite Star Wars thing. So this is not about judging where it all fits between Star Wars fandom and making one piece of Star Wars better than the other. But this is about applying a critical, loving eye to my favorite and the original cinematic universe, which is the galaxy far, far away. Without uh, going on too deep, I could go on forever about this topic. Laurel, do your thing.
1: Yeah, my thing is just that we would love to hear from you. So we are on social media. We are on the app formerly known as Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast, and we're on Facebook. You can also find us on the World Wide Web, www.midnightmyth.com, where you can also find hubs for The Wheel of Caw and Sleep and Sorcery, our other two podcasts. And if you like what you hear on The Midnight Myth, The Wheel of Caw, or Sleep and Sorcery, you know what to do. Leave five stars and a rating or a review on your favorite podcast listening app, especially Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And just let us know what you think and share with your friends. If you don't like what you hear, tell your enemies.
0: Love it. Shall we move on to the briefest of brief recaps? Let's do it. Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace opens with the taxation dispute between the greedy trade federation and the peaceful planet of Naboo, and the queen of Naboo, Padme Amidala. The evil trade federation has decided to blockade Naboo, and then two Jedi Knights are dispatched, Qui-Gon Jinn and his Padawan Obi-Wan Kenobi, and we find out there's a Darth Sidious that's been orchestrating this blockade, and they decide they're gonna kill the two Jedi Knights. Obviously, that doesn't go well. They sneak down to the surface of Jabu, sorry, Jabu, Naboo, save a Gungan named Jar Jar Binks who then ends up bonded to them for life in which they go on a crusade to warn the queen when they get to the queen realizing there's a full-scale invasion by the droid army of the trade federation they sneak her through the blockade try to get her to Coruscant in which she is going to plead the case to the galactic senate however the hyperdrive is damaged so they stop at Tatooine there on Tatooine, they meet a slave boy named Anakin. Anakin says he's going to help them by winning a pod race. When he wins the pod race, they will be able to get the parts for their hyperdrive. They get the parts for the hyperdrive. When Anakin wins, Qui-Gon bargains his freedom from a uh, the slave owner named Watu. Watu? I have no Watto. Watu, <laughs> Watu, 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 I forget his name. And they end up then leaving. Sadly, Anakin is not able, I'm sorry, Qui-Gon is not able to bargain for Anakin's mother's life. She is still enslaved. Then they go to the Galactic Senate. There in the Galactic Senate, they meet Senator Palpatine, who tells them that because of bureaucratic control over the Senate, they are unable to defer a motion to get the Galactic Republic to act in Naboo's sovereignty interest. So what does Amidala do? She has a motion of no confidence against the Supreme Chancellor and decides she's gonna go back to Naboo to fight with for her freedom and the freedom of her people. There she makes an alliance with the Gungans and they have this elaborate battle that takes place on land, space, and lightsaber Meanwhile, Darth Sidious sends his apprentice, Darth Maul, to go and try to root out the queen, make her sign a treaty to legitimize the Trade Federation's occupation of Naboo, in which case Darth Maul ends up in a battle, lightsaber battle, with Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. Qui-Gon sadly dies, and then um, Obi-Wan ends up cutting Darth Maul in half, presumably dead, but in other Star Wars we learn that he does survive this. All of this is to say, What happens is Palpatine ends up becoming the Supreme Chancellor. The Jedi Council does not want Qui-Gon to take on Anakin as a Padawan learner because Anakin has lots of fear and worries about the loss of his mother. But after the death of Qui-Gon, Obi-Wan is anointed as a Jedi Knight and he takes on Anakin as his Padawan to train. And now Palpatine is the new Supreme Chancellor. Ooh, a lot of plot happens in this movie. I was going to say,
1: just a little bit of plot in this one.
0: A lot of plot happens in this movie. I tried to keep it brief. I probably missed a few things. This movie came out, actually, when did it come out?
1: Uh, is it 99 or 2000?
0: It came out in the late 90s, early 2000s. Laurel's looking it up as we speak. You know, we always ask, does it hold up in this segment? It's It's been out for a while, there's a lot of things that we can say in the does it hold up section. So I'm just going to rip the bandaid off. What When did it come out? 99. 99. So first, before we ask does it hold up, tell me your experience with the Phantom Menace. When did you see it? What was it like? What was your gut reaction then? And then now link that to does it hold up today?
1: Great. I think that's a great place to start because for so many of us, especially people who consider ourselves Star Wars fans, we can remember where we were, how old we were, the effects that each Star Wars release had on us, especially in those uh, formative years for us. So I had seen the original trilogy, I had at least seen one or two of them in the theaters because they came back for a limited engagement. I remember very clearly seeing Empire Strikes Back in theaters and that being a really powerful experience for me. So I had seen those very young because I was nine years old when Phantom Menace came out and there was fervor on the playgrounds, let me tell you, about a new Star Wars movie. And for some reason, my dad was taking a business trip to LA around the same time that the new Star Wars movie was coming out. So I had this idea that I was gonna go to LA with my dad and he was gonna take me to see the new Star Wars movie in Hollywood like at Grauman's Chinese Theater, and I was gonna get my handprints in the cement out there, and I was gonna get a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and basically be discovered and become a famous actor. Um, I, I just I told everyone that I was gonna go see Star Wars in Hollywood, and that did not happen. <laughs> Did did you
0: have any, like, inkling that that could happen? Did your dad say he might take you? I'm pretty
1: sure I projected that whole thing. And maybe he was like, oh, yeah, it'd be fun if we went on a family trip. And I just, like, snowballed that into a thing that I bragged to all my friends about. And then it didn't happen. But I did get to see it in Austin, where I grew up at the Gateway Theater And I remember being pretty blown away by it because of pod racing, because of the music, because of the lightsaber fights. And in 1999, there was so much innovation happening with computer generated imagery. And a lot of this was stuff we had never seen before. This is a big blockbuster year for movies, obviously things like the matrix came out that year that were really groundbreaking in terms of visual effects. Um, I was a kid, so I unequivocally loved Jar Jar Binks. He totally worked for me. Doesn't work for me anymore, but that was something that connected with me. And I remember being completely bamboozled by the Padme switcheroo, which like, ladies and gentlemen, let me take you back to a simpler time, a time long, long ago when Kira Knightley and Natalie Portman were not household names enough that on a giant screen, we could confuse them for each other under a few layers of makeup.
0: To be fair, there's it's more than a few layers of makeup. It's a lot of makeup. Yeah,
1: but just to think about those two actors now and how recognizable and famous they are, um, how hard it would be to confuse them for one, one another now. It's just a really fascinating little uh, moment in time. So I have really fond memories of seeing it and I also recall, and you know, I think we'll get into this as we move through the prequels, I also recall my opinions on it, on the, the prequel trilogy, really doing a 180 after this movie. Like, I was so excited about it, I had this youthful uh, kind of optimism about Star Wars, and then I, in the middle of that trilogy coming out, became like a really snobby film geek, so, I I really did a hard turn on it and ended up really, really sour on the prequels by the end of it. I don't think you have to be a film geek necessarily to have gone sour on the prequels, but um, there was definitely a, a big change that happened with me there. As far as whether I think this movie holds up today, it's really kind of a complicated thing to answer now because on the surface, like no, it doesn't look that great. Um, For the most part, now, there are some things that do look really good, and then there are some things that are just really kind of cringe. And there's, there's just a sense that it doesn't have the same kind of wondrous magic as the original trilogy. I think that remains. There is, at the same time, some really interesting innovation that happens, and I think it is worthwhile uh, the fact that George Lucas tried to do something very different within the same galaxy, even if it wasn't successful. So I have some more respect for it now. Um, and I think we'll, we'll mine some of that nuance in our conversation tonight. I also think looking at it today from a like deep immersion in the Star Wars extended cinematic and television universe and the Disney plus Lucasfilm world, I think looking at it now, opens up all these kind of new ways of perceiving it, and you can appreciate some of the little seeds that it plants. So I don't think as a movie it's great or holds up per se, but I have more respect and love for it now than I did 10 years ago, you know?
0: I love all of that. So for me, for those of you listening, if you do not know, if you're just tuning in for the first time, Laurel and I are married. We have an age difference. I am older than her. So in 1999, I was a senior in high school. Me and all my friends, we got midnight showings the night of. It was a school night. I think it was a Thursday night. And we all went out and saw it. One of my friends was so tired on the way back home that He fell asleep in the car and trashed his car. Oh, God. No one was hurt. (laughs) The car, he was able to get the car home, but that car did not last much longer after that. Um, Laurel can probably guess which friend it is. I won't say their name since no one here knows them, but Laurel probably knows. There might have been a little marijuana involved. Just saying there might have been a little marijuana involved in that falling asleep behind the wheel. Um, When me and all my friends saw it, we were all diehard Star Wars fans. Probably of that group, I was the Star wars the most. Like, I was the biggest Star Wars fan, most likely. You know, it's not like a a rank, but, you know, like, I don't, didn't get a medal that, oh, Derek is more Star Wars than everyone else. But I was probably a little more into it than most of my friends by by a hair. And we were so starved for a Star Wars movie It's very different from the Star Wars fans that grew up in the prequel era where there's consistently Star Wars things coming out all the time. It was a long time from the original trilogy end to when the the prequels happened. And everybody knew because anytime George Lucas was in front of a camera, he'd say, I'd love to do the prequels. So everyone had been debating. There'd been so much anticipation the the fact that the prequels could happen was one of the things that drove me into, at the time, called the Extended Universe, now called Legends, which were the comics and novels that were written in the Star Wars universe because I'm like, eventually the prequels are gonna happen, so I gotta get ready with all of this other awesome Star Wars content. And then the prequels happened, we saw them. And I think the general reaction at the time among me and my friends we were blown away. We had never seen anything like it. It was the most visually insane Star Wars um, drama we had seen. There was so much unbelievable good action in it. We'd never seen lightsaber fights like, like it. The initial reaction was completely blown away. But as we all, because then this was before we would go online and discuss everything in every detail all at once, We'd go to the movies again, we'd see it again. Me and my friends started picking it apart and being like, kind of strange that they put this sci fi element to the Force in the Metachlorians. This character, Jar Jar Binks, doesn't really do it for us as teenage boys um, in high school. Some of this acting kind of feels a little stale. Hey, should everything be CGI? Actually, we'll get to this in the prequels, but this one has a lot more practical effects than the movies to come. So there are a lot of great practical effects. Like, is it a little too much CGI? So we started picking it apart and started thinking, ooh, maybe this wasn't as good as our initial reaction, and this would be part of what would become the like groundswell of resentment that would build up about The Phantom Menace. Because it became, no, Jar Jar Pink stinks. And eventually, this is how it worked in the old days, folks. Back when we had to walk uphill without shoes in a snowstorm on the way to school. A movie came out, and it was out for a long time. And then eventually, you had to buy a thing called a DVD, which is a little CD with a movie on it. So then you get the DVD, and you're watching it with your friends. And I'm a little older, and we were watching it, pausing it, talking about it, and being like, wait a minute, this movie sucks. And then, it, so it came from, oh my God, Star Wars is back, this is the greatest thing ever, to this is a bad movie, what's happening? George Lucas, like you owe me my money back, you better write the ship. And there became this fan anger, and I was part of the original fan community, it's very different now, that started thinking like, maybe George Lucas doesn't know what he's doing flash forward to now and rewatching it with you and seeing all of the things that have come out of the prequel era. I think this movie largely holds up. I think the criticisms then that for whatever reason, as a teenage boy made me really mad are still there. Those criticisms aren't washed away, but they're not dominant in my mind. I think, Qui-Gon Jinn is a great character. I think young Obi-Wan is a great character. I think, <coughs> excuse me, the way it balances this political story about the seeds that would become a war with some of the Star Wars whimsy and fun is really great. And I think the the third act, other than Jar Jar's like failing up hijinks, which is a little silly and doesn't totally match with everything else you're seeing. Other than that, the third act is spectacular. In particular, the Qui-Gon, Obi-Wan, and Darth Maul lightsaber lightsaber battle. So I I think this movie holds up extraordinarily well. Does it make sense now to have this movie shot 100% digitally and the oversaturation of CGI? No, but nobody had done that before. And George Lucas... Had to kind of plant the seed, break through the wall that other filmmakers would then go on to do better than he could do. But George Lucas was never amazing because he was the best, but he is amazing because he's often the first. And he was the first at that. And so yeah, it's a little clumsy and it it doesn't hold up as well. But we don't have things like Ryan Johnson's Knives Out, which is a hundred percent digitally shot but made to look like film, if we don't have the Phantom Menace. So I do think there's incredible innovation happening there, and it tells, despite all the the add-ons that are annoying, the metachlorians, you know, the acting's not phenomenal in this, I'm not gonna defend it, you know, the over CGI, but it tells a really efficient, interesting, different type of story than Star Wars had ever told before, And I'd say it tells that story incredibly well. And for that reason, I'm willing to say, yes, it holds up. I do think it holds up in my personal opinion. I think this is a good movie with tons of things that we could debate and pick apart and say are bad. I'm not excusing any of that, but I do think at the end of the day, this is a really solid movie. When I rewatched this movie, I sit there and think. Yeah, man, this is raising. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end. What will I become?
1: Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2.
0: Play it now with Game Pass. Chesko Sebulba.
1: Like, yeah, well said. Nice.
0: So, shall we turn to analysis?
1: I think we should.
0: Cool, cool. I wanted to give you some space in case you had something that you wanted to say there, and all good, because uh, let's move to analysis. So, analysis, what you got?
1: So, I wanted to start off, or I wanted to kind of frame our conversation around the prequels, because when we endeavored to cover the original trilogy in its entirety. When we went from episode four, five, and six, we dedicated one episode to each movie and we were very specifically looking at the original trilogy through the lens of Joseph Campbell's hero with a thousand faces, the monomyth, the hero's journey. We were looking at it to decode the symbolic language. I don't think that same approach is the right approach here. I think you absolutely could take that approach, but I'm interested in framing it in a different way. And so I wanted to start each episode on the prequels with a question that I was actually inspired by the Wheel of Ka to ask, because at the start of most of your Wheel of Ka episodes, at least the ones on the Dark Tower, you address all of the characters, but you also ask, what is Ka? And ka in the Dark Tower very much feels like a... F- force similar to the force. So I wanted to ask at the start of each episode on the prequels, what is the force in this movie? And see how that changes or evolves, or if that changes and evolves throughout the prequels.
0: I love that. Are you asking that of me?
1: Uh, You can go first, I can go first. What do you think?
0: Yeah. No, usually I, I ask the questions. I love this role reversal. Yeah. I think it's worth kind of stepping back and asking, what is the force period? And then we can say from there, what is the force in this movie? Obviously we've seen Star Wars, all of us have, the force is an energy field that binds the galaxy together. It's like gravity, except you can manipulate it with your own will. And the force has two different sides, the light side and the dark side. They exist simultaneously. And in many aspects of the force that we see, it's about the balance between the light and the dark. The Jedi traditionally, ideally, in a perfect world, they're the guardians of this balance, making sure that there's enough light side and enough dark side. Too much light side or too much dark side, things get unbalanced. It is reminiscent to me of a lot of Eastern philosophical ideals. Um, For example, ancient Indic religions talk about the combination of prusha and Prakriti these two different forces, and that your goal as a Brahmin is to bring them into harmony, that these two different forces exist simultaneously and from there all creation comes from. There's also in um, the yin and the yang in Chinese, uh, forgetting the philosophy, the Taoism. Yeah. (coughs) Excuse me. So in Taoism, there's the yin and the yang, these two opposing yet opposite forces that must act harmoniously together. So the Force is this energy field that those that study it, that live the life of a Jedi or a Sith, are able to tap into and manipulate it. They can manipulate it, which gives them powers. Powers from being able to have telekinesis, having super fast reflexes, being physically stronger, faster than others being able to wield lightsabers, being able to control people's minds from time to time, depending on how strong that mind is or isn't. And then we see force powers throughout the extended universe expanded in lots of different creative ways. So we have this energy field that certain people that study it can tap into it. What we learn in the Force Awakens, I'm sorry, the Phantom Menace, confusing my different movies Mm -hmm. there, What we learned in The Phantom Menace is that the Force is at least part biological. I don't want to harp on this too much because a lot has been said about metachlorians. There's a lot of opinions on it. In general, don't love it. But we learn about the Force in The Phantom Menace that there are these microscopic organisms that live in our blood called metachlorians. And depending on how many you have, depends upon how easy or hard it will be for you to communicate with the force. The metachlorians are the biological mechanism by which we can connect to the force. So you can take a sample of someone's blood and you can analyze it, see how many metachlorians there are. Based upon the amount of metachlorians, you can determine how sensitive one could or could not be to tapping into the force. The issue with this, the problem I have with this, is that the force is inherently magical. It is inherently spiritual in nature and grounding it into a biological countable quantifiable organism. My initial reaction to it back when I was in 1999, which I think still exists today, is that does that cheapen it a little bit? Do I need to know the exact biological mechanism by which Zeus can command his thunderbolt or do it, is it much cooler that Zeus can summon a thunderbolt at will. And I say that as, because we know dark side users, what can they do? They can shoot lightning from their hands. You know, like, so what's what what really makes that story interesting or compelling? To me, what makes it interesting and compelling is the spiritual and the magical nature of it, not the tangible, countable nature of it. That being stated, it is an interesting development in the story in the respect that by the time the, the High Republic fails and the Empire rises, all knowledge of the Force in a systemized, organized, governmental way is gone. So the idea that you could count it is gone, and the only realm in which it can exist is in the symbolic and mythic and religious, which makes sense in the episode 4, 5, and 6 in episode one, two, and three, a very different world. It looks different, it feels different, the technology's different. In some ways it's prettier, in some ways it's ugl- uglier than the original trilogy. And in this world, it makes sense that they have found a way, because there's been a thousand generations of Jedi, they found a way to count what makes something something more likely to be a Jedi than not. Which kind of tracks with our own civilization. We find ways when we form institutions that are about governing and about organizing and drawing out talent and aptitude, we find ways to measure. How do we do that in our society with kids? IQ standardized tests. We create these things that say, based upon this, we should expect this. Do those things actually represent intelligence or aptitude, Mm -hmm. but they're institutional. So I like that. In this period of time, there's an institutionalized way to measure force sensitivity, which is a barometer of whether you can or cannot join the Jedi Order. So I think, for starters, the force, a little more scientific. And I've come a long way with the Metachlorian piece. Would you like to add anything to that?
1: I would. I agree with everything that you just said, and that was along the lines of what I was going to talk about, especially with the comparisons to gravity in the original trilogy, there also feels in the original trilogy like it's this intangible, etheric thing, but it is nonetheless natural and impartial. I feel like that is a major tenet of the force in the original trilogy, where in the prequels, we get this really interesting contradiction where, like you said, we have this uh, specification of it into this biological quantifiable thing, But we also get a really different picture of it through the character of Qui-Gon, who is constantly using phrases like, it was the will of the Force for us to meet, or the Force brought us to you, the Force did this, the Force worked some kind of will upon the story. So there is this removal of the impartial factor in the Force that, also weights it, while being biological and tied to midichlorians, with this more sublime, more supernatural essence than I feel like it has in the original trilogy. So that feels very contradictory, but it's nonetheless really quite fascinating. The idea that the force might be sentient and have a will rather than the way we've seen it before, which is that it is a totally impartial presence that is everywhere and it's, the will of people and force users that manipulates it into expression in the dark side and the light side in good or evil action. So I just wanted to add that dimension to it that Qui-Gon gives us two really different pictures of what the force could be.
0: Well, and that would be my second point about what the force is in this and another way this story advances this sort of idea of the force. And Qui-Gon seems to differentiate between different types of force. Right by calling the living force. Now people, I don't know if this ever happens in the prequels, it doesn't happen in the Phantom Menace. The other people, I know people call it the cosmic force and maybe there's a comic or book that I'm missing that explains that. But he t- he tells Obi-Wan in the very beginning, be mindful of the living force. And then when Obi-Wan um, offers to take the trials, when Qui-Gon says, I will take Anakin as my Padawan, Obi-Wan's ready to become a knight. He says, he still has a lot to learn about the living force. Right. And to me, the living force is the metachlorians, is the part that lives inside all life forms, this thing called the metachlorians that lives in us, and that is the living force. But there is another component to it, which is the non-living, because if there's a living force that you have to listen to as opposed to the other force, that means there's the non-living force or the, the cosmic force the idea that it is bigger and beyond and outside of all living things. And to me, I think that is why we see Qui-Gon kind of juxtaposing between what seems like different opposing forces. And the cosmic force is the force that I think is ultimately when he's saying this is the will of the force, he's saying it's the cosmic force. It's not the metachlorians saying, Oh, this is the chosen one. Um, the other thing about the Force too, with this, if I can go into another yeah, point. Yeah, please go ahead. Is that it's institutionalized around a formal religion that's part of a state. The idea of the separation of church and state doesn't seem to apply to the Galactic Republic because there is a, a official religion called the Jedi. They're also a military order. Uh, They're peacekeepers, but in the respect that like your local neighborhood police officer in America is part of a military order, a security force. Even though you wouldn't call it, they're not part of the army. Their job isn't to go, you know, fight bad guys on the other side of the world. So they are a military force. They are a s- official sanct- like state-sanctioned religion, and I think that's another component of it that have things like prophecies, rules, very structured dogmas. Yeah, yeah, very dogma, very dogmatic. And a thing that I love the most about this movie is how Qui-Gon is the punk rock Jedi. And that how Qui-Gon is constantly looking at this organized structure called the council, he has to follow their orders, and he's constantly thinking like, you guys are getting the living force wrong. And he is able to follow a moral compass beyond the dogma of the Jedi. This lesson that's imparted in Anakin We'll have disastrous effects as Anakin grows to become a Jedi Knight, but it's, you see the chinks in the armor of the Jedi Order from the very beginning of this trilogy. You see that the Jedi are too dogmatic, they're too invested in their own power, they're too in love with their own sense of self-righteousness, and they're not willing to listen to the people on the outside because they're convinced of their own hubris. They are like, we're the Jedi, we're on the Jedi Council, we run this galaxy. You know, we are in control of it as much as they're for democracy, they also have tremendous influence and sway over how this Republic works. And I thought about Anakin Skywalker's first encounter with the Jedi Council. And what is he? He's cold and afraid. Not a single one of these Jedi offer him comfort. Not a single one of them gives him a blanket the way Padme did. Not a single one of them tells him, your mother will be okay, kid. Don't worry, it's a big galaxy. She'll be all right. They're like, you miss your mother? Yeah, that's bad, man. You're not one of us if you miss your mother. You have way too much fear. Telling a child that misses his mother that that fear is bad. And you can see at the beginning, like, man, you just told this to this child? No wonder he grew up kind of freaking messed up. Because he also does have superpowers and will grow to become super, super powered. And so you start seeing the chinks in the armor in how the Jedi is stopping to be the custodians of peace and starting to be the custodians of their own hubris. And so you start to see why this order is at a point where it's like, oh, this is the start of their downfall.
1: I really like what you say about Qui-Gon being the quote-unquote punk rock Jedi. And when you think about the arc that the characters will take moving forward, his influence is so very needed, especially on Anakin and on his own Padawan Obi-Wan Kenobi and on the Jedi Council, right? You need this character who has a steadfast moral compass and who is willing to put aside some of the dogmas of the Jedi Council if it's what's right. Ultimately, taking on Anakin as an apprentice is going to lead to the downfall of the Republic, but maybe if people listened to Qui-Gon, it could have gone a different way. You know, what you say about the lack of comfort that's afforded to this child who's just been taken from the arms of his mother and fears for her safety, the fact that there is a complete dismissal of emotion and attachment within the the Jedi Council and the Jedi Order, and yet they're expected to be the upholders and negotiators of peace and the fighters for what's right. How do you develop a moral compass and a sense of what is right and wrong if you are not able to feel empathy or sympathy or form attachments to other human beings. Those are the things that make us rich as humans, right? Those are the things that help us develop into stronger people or our relationships. So this influence of Qui-Gon, this punk rock, this rebel within the Jedi Order is very much the example that most of these characters need. And unfortunately he's ripped from us way too early. And that leads, I think, in many ways, to the downfall of of many of these characters.
0: And Anakin (laughs) learns very early, if I'm going to be a Jedi, I have to hide my feelings from all the other Jedi. And that is something that they will all come to regret, because we all know where Anakin's story is going. And it didn't dawn on me until this actual viewing how terrible the Jedi Council actually was to Anakin. This is not to excuse the crimes of Darth Vader in subsequent movies, and... This is not to say that that's okay, but there was a dawning of understanding that like George Lucas planted this seed very early in this movie that of course this kid's never going to trust the council. Look at how they treated him and look at how they treated him as a child. Of course he's going to look for love and of course someone like Darth Sidious will see that need for love and exploit it. So where's the force in this? It's in a tough spot. It's in a spot where it, the custodians of it are losing sight of what it means to bring balance to the universe, and they are completely blind to the evil that is brewing, to the darkness that is brewing. The Force is not in a good place in this movie at all. It's in a place where we are seeing the seeds of the downfall. This is the start of the tragedy. One of the things I like the most about this movie is it's kind of triumphant in its ending, even despite the fact that like there's some darkness coming, but it is a very, very fun ending with uh, you know, ba 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 you know what you <laughs> know like it's really, really great. Yeah. Um and party on the boo. Yeah, and it it feels like the closest to a new hope in that respect, that it ends very triumphantly. But yeah, the force is in a dark place.
1: I think what you just said about the fact that the Jedi Council is planting, is planting all of these seeds and they're they're sowing the seeds of their own downfall, but they are completely complacent. I think that's a really good way to visualize the Republic in general in this period of its development. We, you know, we see some really excellent lightsaber battles in this movie and we see gorgeous choreography and Really refined um, combat, and we also see the civilized proceedings of a Senate and of diplomats conversing with each other. It's not always terribly civilized. sometimes they're shooting each other, but it's all very much cloaked under the facade of this very civilized time versus the original trilogy, which is dirty and grimy, and you know the the lightsaber usage is rugged and everyone feels like they're in this world in decay. And yet I feel like the veneer of this highly civilized, uh, this more elegant time as Obi-Wan, or an elegant weapon for a more civilized time is how he describes the, the lightsaber. But this civilized time is the complacent time before the fall. So there's a really interesting artistic thing going on here where it paints with this really beautiful brush a republic that is at the height of its power and doesn't know it's just at the start of its own fall.
0: I love that. And to that respect, there's a lot of interesting iconography in Naboo that I think's worth picking apart a little bit. Yeah. So I feel like Naboo is Atlantis. And Atlantis, we all know, is the story of the lost continent that was super advanced, and then they thought that they were better than the gods and then the gods punished them and they sunk to the sea. There's all of this sort of uh, old world, very textured, these huge columns, these gigantic statues, and they they feel like a cross-section but between Western and Eastern. You know, that's the thing about Naboo, which you feel like Atlantis, if that was the origin of all human culture, it would have the cross section of Western and Eastern. We see statues that look somewhat like ancient Indic. We see the makeup of Queen Amidala, which seems sometimes Eastern. Then we see these Greek columns and these like copper roofs and and all of this that feels very like huge and grand and amazing and beautiful. And then where is half of the population of this planet? Where do they exist? Underwater. The same way that the Atlanteans are known to be their connection to the water. And then you have the Gungans living underwater, which is Atlantis is this metaphor of a society that thinks it's too big to fail, eventually failing. Written by Plato. So we've talked about it many, many times in the podcast, but worth mentioning here, Plato talked about Atlantis. He wrote this during a time called the Peloponnesian War. And this is a war between Athens and Sparta, The Athenians thought there's no way we're losing and they lose. And then after they lose, democracy gets overthrown. There's a tyrannical oligarchy that gets put in power. Then there's a revolt and democracy comes back in play and Plato's just sitting there like, oh no, no, no. this is terrible. This is not the way great society should work. And he comes up with the allegory of Atlantis to warn people like, hey, you might be mighty and great today, but you could fall tomorrow, especially if you have hubris. And I feel like the Naboo, the way that it is uh, communicated to us symbolically, this cross-section of Eastern and Western, this beautiful, idyllic, peaceful place that is that looks like a paradise on the precipice of the fall, which is very different from, you know, planets that we go to early in Star Wars, or like Tatooine. You know, we're at Naboo first. We're at, this is like, it's part of the inner circle of planets. It's super important though. It's small and here they are. <coughs> and this is like a really good symbolic way that he's communicating. George Lucas is communicating to us. This is the start of the fall of the Republic.
1: Yeah, I think that's really well said. Man, (laughs) Atlantis sounds a little bit like Star Wars, doesn't it? You know, the the rise and fall of empires and rebellions and the reinstatement of democracy only to feel just a little bit unstable. That's, yeah, that's fascinating. I think that's really well said. Would you permit me to switch gears just a little bit? Switch them up. So I wanted to talk about a few of the interesting archetypes that appear in The Phantom Menace. One of them just came to me as we were talking before, um, about Jar Jar, who obviously has not been the most beloved character throughout time, but you mentioned something about him kind of failing up during that battle, that final battle with the droid army, and it's very true, it's like the, the well-placed fall or pratfall that Jar Jar does winds up killing a whole bunch of battle droids. It's really very ridiculous, but that is a well-worn archetype throughout folk tales and fairy tales of the kind of wise fool Right, and I'm thinking about this because I'm I'm working on something for sleep and sorcery right now that's inspired by the archetype of the fool. But many of these characters, I, I think, especially of uh, Russian folk tales and fairy tales, you'll have like the youngest son of a family who everyone thinks is just an idiot, but he is constantly in the right place at the right time, or he is so ignorant that he doesn't fall into the same traps as most people do. So he just constantly happens upon success by sheer dumb luck. It's just a a trope that reverberates throughout time. So I thought that was an interesting way to frame Jar Jar Binks, who will, of course, after this, have a meteoric rise to Senate power and to being really important in the Clone Wars. So a really interesting iteration of that archetype of folk and fairy tales. But mostly, I wanted to discuss a, a trope that occurs with Padme, um, Queen Amidala, and that is this idea or this convention of the monarch in disguise. So it's something that is so ubiquitous, I feel like in movies and TV that you can probably like prattle off a few of these right off the top of your head, thinking about like Princess Jasmine and Aladdin or the prince and the pauper, just these stories about royal people or great leaders dressing up as peasants so they can go out among the common people. But I wanted to bring up just a few notable examples of the king, queen, or otherwise ruler dressing up as a commoner to pass unhindered through their world. And we can find it all the way back in classical Greek mythology as a practice that Zeus and the Olympians would undertake now and then. The best known example of this is the story of Bacchus and Philemon. In this story, Zeus is so fed up with mankind that he's just ready to destroy them. He's like, I'm gonna flood the earth and start over because I just hate people so, so much.
0: Always a flood when the gods or God is mad, always a flood.
1: Absolutely, so what does he do? He decides, okay, I'm gonna give them one more chance. I'm gonna dress up as just a common man I'm gonna take my boy Hermes with me and we're gonna go door to door and I'm gonna see if I can find one decent human being on this planet and if not, I'm just gonna smite them all. So he does disguise himself as a beggar and he goes door to door looking for a decent human and he goes first to these wealthy people who all turn him away like you're gross, get out of my house. But just as he's about to give up on mankind, he comes to the door of Bacchus and Philemon who are a poor elderly couple. They've lived their whole life in poverty. Still, without question, they invite him in and they summon up the most lavish feast they possibly can. They're like, we're gonna kill our best goose for you. Like, whatever you want, we're gonna make you a feast fit for the gods, even though he's just a poor beggar man. But as they're feeding him, they notice that the wine bottle never empties and the plates never empty. There's just still more and more food. Eventually, um, this restores Zeus's faith in humanity. So he reveals himself and he says, you guys can have whatever wish you want in the world. I'll I'll reward you with whatever you want because you have restored my faith. And of course they wanna become temple priests and their one wish is that they die together. So Zeus grants this wish and has them both die and become trees that become intertwined. But not before he decides to kill everybody else on earth who was not cool to him. So he takes them up to a mountain where they can watch as their neighbors get flooded out of the <laughs> off the face of the earth.
0: Well, you know, those are the old gods. But you know, that, so that's an interesting story. Do you, do you mind if I check or did you No, do, no, no, yeah. go ahead. That story to me does not feel like Padme going amongst Tad. Like that story to me is a story saying that like hey, you teaching the lesson, like you need to be kind to other people. You never know who they are and you should take in the poor and the indigent and try to feed them. Like it's a moral of being like, don't be a jerk to those less fortunate. And there's especially in ancient Greece, this idea of hospitality as close to godliness. If someone comes to your home, you owe it to them to invite them in, to give them hospitality And most importantly, like not kill them or take from them or rape them or whatnot. So it's about establishing that morality that feels very mythologically different from what we see Padme doing. Does that make sense? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Which is why I have a couple more examples. I wanted to show how far back that kind of convention goes, but then we see it uh, moving forward through time. We see actual examples of it in history and then some admittedly probably mythologized versions of real historical figures doing this that I wanted to bring up that feel a little bit closer to what Padme is doing. And what Padme is really doing is trying to keep an eye on the Jedi, right? But she winds up becoming close to the people of Tatooine, becoming close to Anakin and developing, cultivating a real empathy for their plight and feeling a connection between this and the plight of her own people. So uh, there's an example of uh, a king called Matthias the Just of Hungary. And he was really well known for doing this a lot. Apparently every few nights he would dress up as a commoner and walk out into the, the common people just to check and make sure people were doing okay. And he found that by dressing as a subject, he suffered some of the you know same treatment by corrupt local lords that the poorest of his subjects were undergoing and he wasn't aware of this before. So he would use this as an opportunity to expose the corrupt local leadership of his kingdom and thereby improve conditions for his people. And another example of this is the Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II, who is very well known by my Czech ancestors as being uh, one of the more progressive Habsburg rulers. Now take this with a grain of salt because the Habsburgs were all despots but he is known for being... Progressive by that standard. Yeah, he's known for being one of the more enlightened despots, if you will. He made some major reforms during, uh, you know, his rule uh, in the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, But Czech legend has it that he would go around disguised as an itinerant craftsman to keep an eye on the common folk and how they were living. And there's a story where he meets a woman at her cottage and asks her for food. She's just in the middle of putting loaves of bread into the oven, so she says yeah, can you help me put this bread into the oven and then I'll give you a loaf when it's ready. Now she's got some really crappy bread. It's low in nutrients and her milk is blue. <laughs> it's called, it's considered blue milk, which means it's like low in protein or low in fat.
0: Or from Tatooine.
1: Or it's from Tatooine. I just thought that was a really interesting detail that she's got blue milk. And he's like, what is that about? And she starts to complain that, in her village, all of the noble lords take all of the good food, and what's left for the peasants is this really poor, you know, uns- uh, you know, unsatisfactory, unsustainable food. And she says, if I could just talk to the emperor, I would give him a piece of my mind. And then the emperor reveals himself and says, well, that's, that's me. And she's like, oh my god, I'm so, so sorry. She's expecting to be thrown into a dungeon. But instead, Emperor Yosef II is like, you've opened my eyes, now I understand the plight of the common people, and that inspired him to you know, go on this crusade and start all these reforms. So these stories of Matthias and Yosef are definitely folklore, right? There is absolutely exaggeration to it, but they did have this reputation for doing this practice, which I just think is kind of fun, and these are only a handful of examples that there are hundreds of them from history and also from mythology and folk and fairy tales. But I also wanted to point out that it's not the first time something similar has happened in Star Wars. And it's not exactly the same, we're not talking about monarchs dressing as commoners, but when we look at characters who at first misrepresent their identity and then reveal themselves to be someone of higher status, Obi-Wan Kenobi does this in A New Hope. He presents himself as Ben Kenobi, the harmless hermit. Turns out he's one of the great Jedi masters of all time. And then, of course, in The Empire Strikes Back, Yoda presents himself as just this silly little arcane trickster of the swamps of Dagobah before he reveals himself to be the great Master Yoda of the Jedi Council. So it's uh,
0: You're forgetting one. Oh, go ahead. Princess Leia pretends to be a bounty hunter in Return of the Jedi yeah. in order to get close to try to free Han and it turns out it's Princess Leia.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this idea of disguising oneself in order to do virtuous deeds, you know, Kenobi feels like a really uh, powerful version of it, especially because he witnessed Padme doing this and you can kind of connect the dots looking backward that in order to keep an eye on Luke, also on Tatooine, the son of Anakin Skywalker, he adopts a disguise as a common person. And by doing this, he is able to keep tabs on the welfare of, of Luke. So Very yeah, cool. just wanted to, to kind of tie that all up and, and draw it together because it's fun, but also it's, it, it's it's got some real moral implications.
0: So that brings me to something that I wanted to talk about with this movie, which is the sort of, the thematic tension between the Republic enlightenment style ideals and the sort of mythic fantasy language of Star Wars. And I do think that tension exists here. And talking about Queen Amidala is one of those tensions. And I wanna get your take on it. I obviously have my own thoughts. We have a queen, Queen Amidala, Obviously, we need kings and queens in this universe if you're going to eventually have a character called Princess Leia. But we come to find out that Queen Amidala is also an elected official. So she is elected as the queen. She's still called her majesty by her people, which is a very specific term reserved for people that are born into a royal lineage and that will have that royal lineage, lineage, pardon me. They are majestic in nature, meaning that they are ordained by God to have power. That is why they are their majesties, right? And so she's called her majesty, she's called queen, yet she's an elected official. Is this an example of George Lucas putting a square peg through a round hole? Is he trying to maintain... This sort of mythic medieval fantasy feel by using terms like, you know, king and queen, but do they really fit in a story about a republic whose bureaucracy is so out of control it can't police itself when parts of that bur- bureaucracy turn tyrannical? Are you asking me? Yeah.
1: So I d- never thought about it that way. I, I didn't see necessarily this as. Just an attempt to justify Princess Leia. I think that's a really valid uh, way to read it. I sort of looked at it in the context of like a constitutional monarchy, or at yeah, least in a sense. If, if I may, yeah,
0: to interrupt, a constitutional monarchy still has a, a hereditary monarch that goes from you know monarch to monarch based upon typically it's through the male lineage, the firstborn son, but that doesn't have to be, not every monarchy goes that way. So it's still a constitutional monarchy has a royal family that holds on to the monarchy part.
1: Yeah, sure. So what I saw it more as was just a depiction of the diverse array of structural governments that might exist within a really loosely bound, sprawling interplanetary democracy and how complicated it probably is to have a Senate that is the governing body of all of these independent like duchies and kingdoms. It feels very much like the Senate is the, is the the body that represents the high King, right? Where you have all of these other little uh, dukedoms and, and baronies, right? That all, are according to their own rules. So if we were putting together a republic of all of these diverse cultures, we would probably get some really different variations and permutations on what their governmental structures look like. That's how I saw it, but I'm curious to hear your take.
0: Well, when the Queen Amidala is in the Senate, she calls it her sovereignty, which is her right to rule her own territory. Sovereignty is usually used, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, political scientist out there, as a term that you have sovereignty doing by God, right? So it is, and which God doesn't exist in the way that it does in our world. So we could say by the force that she has her sovereignty, which is her independent place where she as queen can rule unchecked, independent of the Senate. That's a direct contradictoriness of the Senate. So imagine, imagine the governor of Pennsylvania going before Congress and saying, I have my sovereign right to rule in Pennsylvania. We would be like, what are you talking about, dude? You're just the governor of Pennsylvania. Like, Take take it down a notch. You're not the sovereign, right? We don't have a sovereign in America. We have an elected president. And I do think there is this thematic tension playing with wanting this movie and the prequels to be about a galactic political drama and still wanting to infuse it with fantasy. And I do think that is a tough tension to to walk thematically. And when you start to scrutinize it, it does tend to fall apart a little bit. Why would the people of Naboo, if they elected a leader, why would they call it a queen? Why would they use the term queen, which means uh, having a monarch that can, that inherits the throne that could pass the throne down. If it's an elected official, why not use a term reminiscent to how we use now to be fair what you're saying is hey it's this whole galaxy people can use lots of terms well why not call it the flarble snap then
1: right Right? like you
0: use the word queen which means you're saying she is a queen but she's not a queen there's nothing queen other than like when you're the queen you get like the fanciest hair and makeup that you could imagine you know other than the fancy hair and makeup and costumes in every actual way that we understand politics as an audience, she is not a queen. She's at best a, a, a president. Yeah, or, or a prime minister. Or a prime minister, you know? So she's at best a president, you know? So to me, I think that's a needle that Lucas is trying to thread that isn't as nimble. And I think looking back, I'm like, probably don't need her to be a queen because the only movie where she needs to be in charge of Naboo is this movie. Right. Then in every other movie, she doesn't need to be tied to Naboo at all.
1: Yeah. And then she becomes a Senator,
0: you know? And so like Queens probably the wrong term. And if you're telling the story about the politics, I think fleshing that out a little bit and not being like, cause she starts as a queen. We all as the audience are just like, well, that's the queen of Naboo. The reason she's so young is well, she's the queen. She inherited it young. So that's what happens with queens. And they're like, hold on, but she was elected? Like, so nabuza yeah. a democracy.
1: This 14-year-old girl was elected as the best possible ruler of Starts Naboo.
0: to Starts to break down a little bit, right? You know, starts to break down a little bit. And and I and I think it's because I think he's trying to thread this needle. Admirable attempt, you know, admirable way that he's doing it because he has terms like princess in the first movie, he must have terms like queen in this movie. And who gives birth to a princess? A queen. Right? Yeah. So like, she's Princess Leia, and that's Princess Leia's mother. And he does so much good in the character Padme of embodying what you'd expect from Princess Leia's mother. But because he forces the term queen on her in the first movie, I do think there's a thematic tension that's unresolved.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's totally valid.
0: Well, I just want to say one last thing. I am a lightsaber guy. One of the things I love the most about Star Wars. And one of the things I love the most about The Phantom Menace is how the lightsaber battles are almost like ballets. And I do think this works incredibly well for this era, because everybody that wields a lightsaber has been part of structured training that has existed for a thousand years. So they are going to be the best of the best of lightsaberists. So I love how elegant and beautiful all of the characters using lightsabers and how phenomenally great and graceful they are. And I love comparing that to other eras of Star Wars that don't have a thousand years of training systemically built into uh, a religion and how raw they are. There's no world in which a Kylo Ren is gonna wield a lightsaber the way that Darth Maul does. And there's no way that a Luke Skywalker is gonna wield a lightsaber in the same way that Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon do. And I just really admire, and I will continue to admire how the lightsabers are used throughout the prequels. And one of my like most redeeming qualities of this whole series is it has some of the best lightsaber fights ever.
1: Totally agree. And that's huge credit to the fight choreographers and also to the actors who really took on some extraordinary choreography and learning and training. Ewan McGregor, who continues to this day to be one of the best actors to ever wield a lightsaber, is just really brilliant and uh, and beautiful and he does it
0: well that's all i got
1: that's all i got too
0: till the next time may the force be with you and be kind co-